For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, uh, The Footsteps of Israel's Kings. Sounds like another history lesson to me. Mr. Whiteley. Thank you, Reggie. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is on this chilly uh, Sabbath day. It looks like we're kind of light today, but that's all right. Uh, as Reggie just mentioned, the title of this message is The Footsteps of Israel's Kings. And I have to be honest, we're really not going to talk about Israel's kings today. So you might be wondering, what, why did you title it that? Well, when I was coming up with this message, uh, I, one of the things I was reading, was, which is in 2 uh, Kings, the 16th chapter, which we're going to get into today, but I started thinking a little bit about how sometimes in history or in our culture or in our society, we give people titles. And they're not always good titles. Sometimes things happen in history, and they're so... Uh, I guess you could say either negative or people remember them so well, the stories are so famous that you can give that person that title and everybody kind of understands what you were referring to. And so right before I came up here, I was just trying to write a few of these down and one of them is from the Bible itself. And that is when someone's called a Judas. Maybe you've heard of you know, someone being called a Judas before. We understand what that comes from. That comes from the Bible. comes from the story of Jesus. One of his 12 disciples who ended up denying him, or not denying him, but betraying him. And of course you could say that's a form of denial. And sometimes in history you can see that sometimes people that are considered a backstabber, someone who's considered uh, someone who is willing to give up on a friend or, or uh, do something to get some sort of gain... Uh, and betray a friend, they can be referred to as a Judas. Also, in our day and age, sometimes people are called a Tom Sawyer. You know, the, you know, the, the famous character of Tom Sawyer. You know, sometimes people who are trying to get someone to do some, someone's task for them, they can be considered a Tom Sawyer. And there's many other titles that sometimes we could probably think of uh, and... and hear people in our culture today, in our society today, uh, call people, and it's a direct relation to something that has happened in history. Well, this is why I named it the Footsteps of Israel's Kings, because we're going to see that one of the kings of Judah was described as walking in the footsteps of Israel. And so we're going to go to 2 Kings. Let's just go ahead and turn it over there. We're going to look at the life of King Ahaz the little short reign of King Ahaz. I have not done a lot of messages in uh, the kings of Israel. Uh, they are fascinating stories. Uh, there are so many lessons that we could learn from the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah uh, that we could spend a lifetime just studying these books of First and Second uh, Kings and Second First and Second Chronicles. But just to set the stage, I'm going to just kind of give us a few facts about this individual who becomes the king of the uh, kingdom of Judah. Ahaz reigned when he was only 20 years of, old, of age. He started reigning. He started being the king of Judah when he was only 20 years old. 
And he did this for 16 years. He had a 16-year reign. If you remember from history, he's not the only king in this region. There's another one to the north. After Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel, that united kingdom of Israel, divides into two kingdoms. You have Israel in the north, and you have Judah in the south. And so Israel became divided right after Solomon, somewhere around the year 931 B.C. And so from that time on, we're going to see some good kings in Judah, some bad kings in Judah. But we're always, unfortunately, going to see some pretty bad kings in Israel. Not one of them you could really consider to be a good king in the northern kingdom of Israel. So Israel in the north had 19 kings in all. And finally fell in 722 B.C. to the Assyrian Empire. We've heard this story before. Judah, to the south of them, had 19 kings as well and one queen. There was actually, we'll see a little bit later, a queen actually ruled in Judah. And they fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And so Judah stays around just a little bit longer than Israel, but both of them, as the story is unfolded to us, in the Bible, both of them fall at the hands of empires, the hands of regional, or you could consider them world powers of their time. So this puts King Ahaz's rule right at the end of Israel's history. 722, remember, is whenever Israel fell to the Assyrians, and Ahaz's rule started somewhere around 735 B.C. And so we're going to see as we open these first few verses up that Ahaz, as the king of Judah, he's not the first one that's going to be a negative king in Judah, but he's definitely going to take Judah to new heights of, of evilness, uh, to a whole new level of corruption, as we will see and as we go through this life of him. And of course, we're not going to go through every single year that Ahaz ruled, but we're going to look and see what the Bible tells us about this king. Because there's one in particular event that took place that highlights exactly what kind of king he was. So let's pick it up just in the first few passages here in 2 Kings 16, verses 1 through 4. It says, In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, that is the king to the north, the king of Israel during the time, and uh, Pekah's 17th year, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he, not, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before him, the, uh, the children of Israel, before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Now I want us just to stop and pause and think. We're given a description of this king of Judah. And of course, the scripture tells us he doesn't do what's right in the sight of the, in the, sight of the Lord. He doesn't walk after his father David, and we understand what that is referring to. But the basis of this message's title today is right here in verse 3. Not only does it tell us those two things, but what it says is, here in verse 3, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. 
you have a king of Judah being referred to walking in the way of a king of Israel. This is a very, very telling statement. And this is why I titled this message, In the Footsteps, or the Footsteps of the Kings of Israel. He obviously is someone who has failed to live up to the calling which he's been given as a king of Judah. And one of the things he does in promoting the evil that he does, it tells us several things, was that he made his son pass through the fire, which was one of the most abominable things that a person could do in this day and age. And many of us have heard of what this is referring to. During this day, even way before this, even whenever the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and in the wilderness and going towards the promised land, this type of practice was going on. Now, if you look in history, there's all kinds of different rituals that were taking place during this period of time. Some of them, of course, involve some really uh, bizarre practices, but one of the worst that we see in history is the ones where innocent children were used in children's sacrifice. There was a pagan practice that was famous for this. It's Moloch worship. Maybe you've heard of it before. Now, we're not 100% sure at this time in Israel's history the way in which this practice was being done. We know that Moloch worship went back way before this actual time that we're looking at. But what we do know is that the practice of sacrificing children that seems to somewhat originate from the times of Moloch and Moloch worship had evolved and had been adopted in different ways by different cultures and different societies. In fact, in Deuteronomy, the 12th chapter, verse 31, and we go all the way back whenever Moses was getting ready to lead the children of Israel to the footsteps of the promised land. We understand he didn't go into it. Deuteronomy 12, verse 31 says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods. He's referring to the people that you're getting ready to come into contact with. You're getting ready to go into this land, and they practice some very abominable things, including things that the, Lord's hate, the Lord hates, for they burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Now, this scripture also says that, if you look at it uh, in verse 5, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and did he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations. The abominations of the nations. If you go to Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, and verses 9 and part of 10, tells us that this was included in the abomination of the, of the nations. Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 10 says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. And of course, it goes on to talk about another practice, the practice of witchcraft or the practice of sorcery, the practice of divination. And so we see that this is one of the most wicked things that anyone could do. And here you have a king that's over Judah, that's practicing these very things, just like other people around him had practiced. And we're going to see why in just a little while. Second Chronicles, the 28th chapter. If you didn't know this, most of us probably do, but Chronicles and Kings are kind of, 
they're kind of like two different accounts oftentimes of the same thing. So what we see is, is that 2 Kings, the 16th chapter, there's a corresponding account to Ahaz's life also found in 2 Chronicles verses, uh, chapter 28, verse 3. And one of the things that 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 3 mentions is that these sacrifices would take place in the valley of what's known as the Son of Hinnom. The valley of the Son of Hinnom. And there's a New Testament relation to this. You see, over time, this valley would be associated with not just some of the most abominable things because sacrifices would happen there, and some of those sacrifices happen to be innocent children. But later on, like in New Testament times, it became known as like a dump where things would just burn perpetually. And people, of course, would bring all types of trash, old animal carcasses and everything like that. And in the New Testament, there's something interesting because it's kind of lost to us in the English. But oftentimes, especially in the book of Matthew, when we hear Jesus say things like, a person's going to burn in hell fire, that word hell comes from the Greek word Gehenna, which is actually a direct allusion or a direct uh, relationship to Hinnom. Gehenna and Hinnom have a relationship. He's referring to that valley to describe eternal hellfire. Now, of course, we have a different understanding of what hellfire means when it comes to eternity and things like that. But in Jesus' day, he was describing the, thing, the place that's, that, that where is the worst location that a person can imagine where some of the most abominable and evil things took place, eventually became associated with uh, eschatology or, or end-time uh, judgment. All through the Old Testament we see this idea of the Valley of Hinnom being associated with the judgment that would come upon those who were evil and people who practiced evil things. And so we see that this is one of the things that King Ahaz involved himself with. This was obviously something that was a false worship, not just because it was an abhorrent practice, but the purpose of it was to do none other but to appease the gods in which these pagan individuals worshipped after and try to secure their protection. It also says that he sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places, the hills, and under every green tree. And we're going to see in just a little while, unfortunately, that he's going to do this in a way where he's literally directly replacing the God-ordained ways of worship with these pagan practices. The sacrifices that he was obviously engaging in were not just practices that were done by other people. It's not like he was just saying, hey, look, I want to take their method of worship and, and, and worship towards the Almighty God. No, he was actually promoting and putting his stamp of approval on practices that were directly devoting a person's self to gods that were false gods. It was false worship. You technically could argue that this was an illegal practice according to the law of God. It was, of course, idolatry. And unfortunately, it was something that was practiced by their brethren to the north, the, the kings of Israel which is why he's described as being a person who is like one of the kings of Israel. So 
we have this story set up for us. This is, this is King Ahaz's, how he's described. You know, when we're first introduced to this person, we're pretty much told, look, this king right here, the one that acts like a king of Israel, these are the things he did. So it sets the story up for us. But then 2 Kings starts telling us a little bit more about the troubles that were coming upon King Ahaz. Now, there's four kingdoms that we have to get straight to understand this account. The first one is the kingdom of Judah, which is Ahaz's kingdom. The southern tribes, okay, which is primarily just made up of Judah, some of Benjamin, and the Levites. But we call it the kingdom of Judah. The other kingdom, of course, is the kingdom of Israel. Sometimes it's referred to the kingdom of Ephraim or referred to as Ephraim, but it's the kingdom of, of Israel. And their location is in Samaria. Then we have the king, kingdom of Syria. The kingdom of Syria is kind of north of the kingdom of Israel, that northern kingdom. And we're going to see that they're going to kind of hook up with each other and, and make an alliance. The last kingdom, which is really not a kingdom, it's more than a kingdom, is an, is an empire, the Assyrian Empire. So you have these four different people groups, these four different kingdoms that we have to kind of keep sorted out in our minds as we look through this. You see, the kingdom of Assyria at this time was growing. They were growing in power. They were becoming a regional power. They were going around. They had a fierce military. And they were taking people over. They were very, very mighty. And they were one of the most fierce people groups during this period of time. This, of course, made the northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria a little bit nervous. This was a threat to them. They thought to themselves, here you have this growing empire over here. That's a little bit northwest of us, or northeast of us rather, not northwest, but northeast. And we need to do something about it, and we need to take action. We need to be proactive and try to do something so we can maybe align our powers together, because if we don't, eventually this Assyrian power is going to come and try to wage war with us. So in order to do this, in order to combat this growing threat of the Assyrians to the northeast, King Pekah of Israel and King Rezin of Syria decided to join forces. They would come into an alliance together. And in their minds, they thought, you know what? It's not enough for us to be joined. We need the southern kingdom of Judah to join with us as well. But there's a problem. There's this guy down there by the name of King Ahaz that's not going to join with us. So we need to overthrow him and put someone on the throne that's going to cooperate with this alliance that is taking place between Syria and the kingdom of Israel. So in verse 5 of 2 Kings 16, it tells us, Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war. And they besieged Ahaz, but not, could not overthrow him or overcome him. At that time, Rezin, king of Syria, captured Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. Then the Edomites went to Elath and dwell there to this day. So Ahaz's problems, they're getting, they're getting big. Now you have a king and another king joining forces and coming at your kingdom. Ahaz's problems unfortunately didn't stop with this force of, or as this alliance to the north of them, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria, but they also had other issues. 
They had issues with the Philistines to the southwest as well as Edom to the south. So here you have this, I just want us to get in the head of Ahaz. He's got problems in all sides of him. How's he going to respond? Is he going to humble himself? Realize that, you know what, maybe some of my problems are because the way that I'm living. Because the way that I'm leading. Because that God Almighty, that Yahweh, that El Shaddai, whatever name you could use for this God of Israel, I haven't really beckoned him in a long time. I've almost forgot about him. Between all the groves that are around, all the pagan altars, the child sacrifice that I'm promoting, obviously you would think that Mr. Ahaz has forgotten about the Lord God Almighty, or at least in a correct way. So what we see here, if we read 2 Chronicles, we're not going to do that, verse 28, there's a list of things that come upon Ahaz. Some really, I mean, it gets more descriptive than 2 Kings, the 16th chapter. Let me just list a few. It says, Syria defeated, in verse 5 through 6 of uh, 2 Chronicles, the 28th chapter, Syria defeated many parts of Judah and took captive many Judahites to Damascus. So when they besieged Jerusalem, and they came upon Judah. They didn't defeat Judah in the sense that they, they, they took Judah over, but they did a lot of damage in the process. They took lots of people, lots of actual native Judah individuals to Damascus, which is, of course, the capital of the Syrian kingdom. Israel under the hand of Pekah, that is, of course, the, the king that's up there in the kingdom of Israel, killed 120,000 in Judah in one day. That's verse 6 of Second Chronicles the 28th chapter. Not only that, but his son, Messiah, and the officer over his house, Azirakam, and Elkanah, who was second command for Ahaz, was killed. Things are getting really, unfortunately, bad for Ahaz. Israel took captive 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and plundered to the capital of Israel, which was Samaria, if you read verse 8 of Second Chronicles, the 28th chapter. Judah then, again, not only has troubles with Syria as well as Israel, but has troubles with other individuals, other groups that they have historically had trouble with. Verse 18 of 2 Chronicles, or I guess you could say uh, verse 17 of 2 Chronicles 28, says that Judah was attacked by Edom, and many were carried away as captives from Judah. Edom's in the south. So you have, you're being attacked from the south, you're being attacked from the, in the north, you're having people being taken captive on both sides. And the troubles don't, don't stop there. Verse 18 says that many cities of Judah were taken by the Philistines, which would be the southwest of them, including Beth, Shemesh, uh, Aijalon, Gederoth, Sokoh, Timnah, and Gizmo. And in verse 19 of 2 Chronicles, the 28th chapter, we read, For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline and Judah, and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. Here's the kicker, though. Ahaz wasn't defeated yet. He still had time, as we're going to see in Isaiah. He still had a chance to redeem himself, as well as the kingdom of Judah. And of course, the kingdom of Judah will never be taken over by Israel, Syria, or the, even the Assyrians. But the damage would be, was done. 
So Ahaz has a choice to make. What are you going to do? I have this alliance ahead of me. And the purpose is, is that they're wanting to go, you know, they're wanting to protect themselves from this growing empire, the Assyrians. I know what I'll do. I'll just, I'll just go ahead of them. They're wanting to protect themselves from this big bad wolf of the ancient Near East, the Assyrians. Well, I know how to fix that. I'll just go and line myself with that big bad wolf, and here I'm, I'll be protected. I know a way to defeat them. Buddy myself with the enemies of them. So if we go to Isaiah, the seventh chapter, Isaiah is prophesying during this time, and he sends a message to, to, to Ahaz. The first six verses of Isaiah, the seventh chapter, says this Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. There again, we know that they did damage, but they didn't defeat Ahaz. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Serious forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Ahaz is scared. Ahaz is scared. Verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct, from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, and the son of Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying... Let us go up against Judah and trouble it. And let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves. And set a king over them, the son of Tabel. Thus says the Lord God. He gets a message from, from God here. It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. And the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken. So that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. God's telling him, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to let this happen, even though you've practiced wickedness, even though you have miserably broken the covenant that God had established with Moses, and especially the extra stipulations and the careful things that the kings needed to apply themselves to as leaders over a nation that is in covenant with God. God saying this is not going to happen. God had plans to judge Israel, which will continue to take place. Even though you have Ahaz not heeding the voice of Isaiah, the judgment on Israel is still going to stand, even if he has to do it in a way that he probably doesn't originally or, or, or in a manner that he would prefer because he's allowing Ahaz to have the free will to do as uh, uh, to make the choice. So God has plans to judge Israel, which will eventually take place in the form of Israel being taken captive by Assyria, the very kingdom they were trying to resist. This is interesting. I think this is a, a lesson for us. I think this is something that we really need to understand. 
about the heart of God. God's a faithful God. Let's just think about our own lives, and we can think about this a little bit at the end because we're going to talk a little bit more about it. But here you have a king in Judah that obviously practices wickedness, promotes wickedness, and God's still long-suffering him. We need to always thank God for how long-suffering he is, especially when we think about our lives. You know, it's easy for us to look at, look at Ahaz and say, man, what are you thinking? You know, God, you're, you're, you're doing all these things. You're, you know, you're, you're practicing evil. God's trying to, to still throw out a life rope to you. He's, he's willing to long suffer with you even though you're practicing these things. What about our lives? Are there sometimes maybe we are in a phase where we're ignoring God? All of us have probably been there. What has God done? Does he strike us down and says, nope, you're no good for me. I'm not going to do anything for you. Raise your hand if you've been blessed before and you thought to yourself, wow, I've been blessed by God and it was during a time where you're thinking, man, there's anything but, you know, I'm doing anything that's pleasing God during this time in my life. In other words, there's been blessings that I've had where I look back and I'm thinking, man, like, if there's one point in my life where God's probably the most disappointed in, me, disappointed in me is in this period in my life. And of course, I'm talking even past baptism. Where you're going through a phase in your life where maybe you're not doing the things that you should do. You're not thinking about God. You're not you know, actively practicing worship of God. You're, you're ignoring Him. You're almost on the verge of forgetting the things that you you came into covenant with him with. And God still throws out an olive branch to you. You see, that's what love is, right? Okay? We have children, many of us. We don't give up on our children just because they're bad. Now, this doesn't give us a license to sin. Obviously, we know the Bible doesn't tell us that. But it gives us a picture of God's grace. You know, people want to talk about grace as just something in the, in the New Testament, and it's not in the Old Testament. And that's, that's a foolish thing to think. It, it, it's, it's so much grace in the Old Testament and it abounds. And we see it all through the scriptures. And so what I'm getting at here is that this is a testimony of how faithful God is. Obviously this isn't to promote Ahaz's actions. This isn't to say that, hey look, you can do what you want, you can act evil, and God will still be there. That's not what I'm saying and that's not what the scriptures are saying. It's not telling us what we can do because God will look overlook it. It's telling us just how faithful God is and how much God loves us. So even in the midst of Ahaz's unrighteousness, God wanted Ahaz to rely on him. And God wanted Ahaz to change. He wanted Ahaz to change. But unfortunately, Ahaz doesn't take this olive branch. He doesn't. Because in 2 Kings verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 7 through 9, Instead, he tries on his own accord, by relying on flesh and blood, to outwit Israel and Syria by forming an alliance with their enemies, the Assyrian Empire. Verse 7 says, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser. That was the king, that was the emperor of, of Assyria during this time. And he said to him, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria, 
and the hand of the king of Israel, who rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house, and he sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him, and for, and for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it, carried its people captive to Kerr, and killed Rezin. And so in Ahaz's mind, he's probably thinking, you know, this, my plan worked. Okay? I've aligned myself with this big bad wolf of the ancient Near East. The enemy of my enemies, essentially. Sorry, apologize. The enemy of my enemy. King Rezin is out of the picture. Okay? And so, what did he have to do, though, in order for this to take place? He basically goes to Tiglath-Pileser, and he essentially makes himself, he volunteers himself, he volunteers the kingdom that he's over, Judah, to be a vassal state to them. Now, if you know from history, and we have some of this in modern times, not as much, but oftentimes what would happen is that a big empire would come around. People would see the writing on the wall, essentially, and says, this people group right here is going to blast us. And oftentimes these empires would give little kingdoms the opportunity just to submit. If you submitted, well, you know, all is going to be well. We'll let you live. We're going to take over your resources. We're going to be the ones who manage those. You're going to have to be at our beck and call. You're going to have to provide soldiers. But you'll live, and you'll continue to be on as a, as a kingdom. But then again, if you resist, well, you better be able to beat them because they're going to have no mercy when they come upon you. And so that's what a vassal state is. He essentially volunteers himself, the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom where the house of God is, to the Assyrians. And Ahaz did not stop here, though. He didn't just say, hey, we'll, we'll become aligned with you. You know, we have this thing over here called the temple, and we have, you know, this thing over here called the, the law of God. We have sacrifices that we are required to, 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 to uh, participate in. We have a Levitical priesthood. We have our religious way that's very strict, and that's very holy, and that's very important not to deviate to the right or to the left from. He didn't do that. Of course he didn't. Of course he didn't. But he went to great lengths to impress Tiglath-Pileser to secure his support. Both 2 Kings as well as 2 Chronicles, the 28th chapter, 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, tells us a list of things in order to secure the support of Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, or the emperor of Assyria. In order to uh, secure his support, he did a multitude of things, all of which slapped God in the face, you know, in terms of, of, of metaphorically, in, in the way that kings of Israel, people of Israel, covenant people were supposed to be behaving. Number one, he replaced the altar of God in the fashion and design of Assyria's pagan altar. So there again, we have an example of the people of God trying to basically take the things of God and fashion it towards the things of other nations, the things of, the things of paganism. Demoted God's altar to a place of secondary importance and used it to practice pagan divination. He actually made God's altar like, a, like his own private altar and replaced it with an altar that was made after the same blueprint that the Assyrian altar was made after. 
He changed several furnishings in the temple. He sacrificed to the gods of Damascus. He shut up the doors of the house of God. He shut up, verse 24 of 2 Chronicles, the 28th chapter, says that he shut up the doors of the house of God and he set up altars in high places in every city of Judah in honor of foreign gods. Verse 26 of 2 Chronicles, the 28th chapter. So the end result is that Ahaz would die as one of Judah's most apostate kings. And it's unfortunate because this was a line of kings that oftentimes, sometimes, were actually good. Because being numbered or being named or being associated with the kings of Israel automatically meant that you were evil because that's the only thing that they had was kings that refused to obey God and practice properly. So if we look at this story, this unfortunate story of King Ahaz, it's unfortunate in the sense that he made these decisions, but it's very telling and there's a lot of spiritual principles that I believe that we can get from this story. Number one, God demands our exclusive devotion. That's a real basic thing to understand. We read all throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, where we see you know, examples where there's all of these, these uh, uh, temptations for Israel to go astray, for Israel to be looking over at the nations and saying, you know what, what they do, that seems like that's better. That's more popular. Why do we have to be the different ones? We don't want to be weird and seem bizarre. We just want to kind of have, you know, we want to basically be in step with the rest of the nations. We can have different titles and different names. We can call God the God Almighty, the God who delivers us out of Egypt. But we want to fashion God in our own liking. We see this right after the Israelites are brought out of Egypt. Moses is up on the mountain. What happens? The people start getting impatient. And they start worrying about what happened to this Moses. We're here in this wilderness. We've just been left here to die. Aaron, make us a God. Make us gods. And of course, what happens? He creates this golden calf, which was an image of a popular deity from, the, from, from Egypt during this period of time. They fashioned God in a way and in a manner in which they believed God should be. Today we have many different things, many different idols that compete for our devotion. You know, last week Reggie talked about, you know, our personal sin or those things that we struggle with that sometimes it's like, why do, I, why do we have to continue to fight with this? It's, 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 it's basic, it's easy. I know this is wrong, I know I shouldn't do this. I know, you know, I shouldn't involve myself with this, but all of a sudden, we go a period of time, and then it comes back. Which is a testimony that we're still in the flesh, unfortunately, and that old man still hangs on. There's many idols today to compete with for God's devotion. Of course, these idols are probably not, in our American Western culture, actual idols that you bow your knee to. But you can bow your knee metaphorically. You can bow your knee to things by the way that you act, by the devotion that you give it, by the time that you give it, by how much it's on your mind, how consuming it is in your lives, in your thoughts. Secondly, trusting in foreign alliances and not God leads away from a relationship with God. Trusting in foreign alliances and not God leads away from our relationship with God. 
I think this is important, I think, living in our times today. I don't think it has to be political. Okay? Uh, it doesn't have to be that, well, I trust in this political person. It can be other things as well. Where do you put your trust? When you are in a bind, when things are coming at you, what do you think about? You think, oh, I have to do something. I have to fix this. Of course, I'm not advocating that we don't use our cognitive faculties, that we don't use our reason, that we don't try to think through the logical things whenever we're in situations. Of course, that's not what God wants. But ultimately, we have to rely on God. We have to understand that He is sovereign, that He's in control, that He loves us, and that He is the one, ultimately, that's going to take care of us. And whatever that may be. It doesn't have to be political, but it can be spiritual. What is our Assyrian empire? Is it ourselves? Do we just rely on ourselves? Our clubs, the groups, our jobs, our bank accounts? The way people think about us? Our reputations? Is that more important? I rely on my reputation. Of course, we want to have a good reputation. The best way to get a good reputation is following after the ways of God. Now, of course, that might, mean, not, that might not mean that we're going to have a good re- reputation with a lot of people. There's a lot of people who hate God. There's a lot of people who detest anything that has to do with uh, uh, you know, religion, especially with, with Christianity or the God of, uh, of these 66 books of our Bible. But it's going to give us a good reputation with the people who matter. It's going to give us a good reputation with God. And, of course, we understand that God's long-suffering which is my next point, God is patient. God is patient, as we saw, but His judgment is sure. So there's both those that we have to remember. God is patient, but His judgment is sure. God is long-suffering, but if His voice is not heeded, eventually He will chastise us. And He won't chastise us in a way that we choose. We don't get to choose the way that God chastises. God has that prerogative. God wants what is best for us and involves, wants us to be involved with an intimate relationship with him. Now thinking back about that story of, of Ahaz and his life and, and how patient God was with him. And we were reflecting a little while ago and we were discussing just how much of a lesson that is to us. Because I think all of us, we need God's patience more probably than anything. Because we continually stumble. We continually fail. And you know what? God didn't choose us because we were good at not stumbling. He didn't choose us because, you know what? This person's better than them. No. The exact opposite. He chose us because he loves us. And just like a parent, a parent is long-suffering. But a parent has to do what a parent does. Love sometimes results in chastisement. A parent that doesn't chastise a kid, doesn't discipline a kid, is going to set that that child up for failure. And we all can agree with that, I think. And so remember that. Lastly, our sinful decisions and acts can have negative consequences on those around us. You think Judah had some negative consequences that were directly related to Ahaz? Now, that doesn't give Judah and the people of Judah who willing participated in the things that he was leading, doesn't give them a pass. Someday, we're going to meet God face to face, right? And all of us are going to have to account for our own actions and our own doings. 
But the thing about it is, is that when you are a person that is in a position of leadership, and leadership doesn't have to be a minister. Of course, minister is leadership. Minister to, or, uh, leadership doesn't have to be someone that just speaks. Leadership can be all different ways. Leadership can be a parent, an older sibling, an older relative, an older friend, any, anybody that you have influence over that looks up to you and in a lot of ways makes you in a position of leadership. Our sinful decisions and acts can have negative consequences on those around us, especially those who look up to us. And we see the negative consequences that took place in the nation of Judah, in the kingdom of Judah, as a result, in large part, by Ahaz's actions. So as we wrap up this message, this story on the life of Ahaz, there's many things that we can think about. And we can reflect in our own lives on many different principles. There's, there's multiple principles that we could derive from this story. I encourage you to study these kings. These kings right here are in this book. Their lives are recorded for, for, for our admonition as examples to us. They're not just recorded in here because... We need to, you know, if you want to learn how to be a good leader, we'll go look at the ones who are good and look, look at the ones who are bad. Of course, you get leadership principles from these stories, and you see how God deals with them. You see how God's long-suffering with them. You see how God judges the heart, not the physical always. He wants to know what's on your heart. He wants to know the way you act out of the goodness of your heart. So I encourage us to study these books. Uh, I know that, like I mentioned at the beginning, uh, you could spend a lifetime in these books. You could spend a lifetime in these uh, stories of, of Israel's kings and Judah's kings. But in the end, remember, our devotion has to be towards God. Don't rely on alliances to protect you. Don't rely on alliances to get you out of trouble. Rely on God the one who's long-suffering, the one who's always faithful, and remember that our actions, we're accountable for them. And they can have consequences, not just for us, but those around us as well.